Well, good morning. I would invite you to return in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3 is where we are. As Jeff said, if this is your first Sunday here, we're studying the book of Titus. We're, technically, we're studying the book of Acts, but we are taking a little diversion into the book of Titus for a reason. We're in Titus because Titus uh, gives us an understanding of what an established church looks like. And, uh, and so as we're, we're at the point in Acts where Paul's about ready to go out and, and extend the church and do the work of the church, and as he's about ready to do this work, um, uh, as he's heading out, I wanted us to understand what the work was that he's doing. I want us to understand what the, this mission of the church was. And as we see Paul planning churches, what does a church look like? And Titus gives us that picture. So, so we're taking a little diversion to study Titus and really to understand the impact that the church is to have in the world. God designed the church to be a place that actually impacts the culture. When he designed it, he didn't just design it to be a gathering spot alone. He designed it to actually be a place where God's grace is taught, where people are built up, and actually they begin to engage the world at an incredible level where change happens. And this is something that we're learning as we study the book of Titus. And, and before we jump into it, I'd like to just open in a word of prayer. So would you join me in prayer here this morning? God, I do thank you for the privilege we have of, of being in your word this morning. I thank you for the message of grace. I thank you, God, that we get a chance to understand the impact of grace, not just in forgiveness, but in transformation. And that this message of transformation is for the world, that people can be set free. God, there's so much bondage in the world. And that bondage leads to lawlessness. It leads to to depravity. It leads to horrible things that we see all around us. But people can't break out. They don't know how to stop. They can't stop the anger. They can't stop the pride. They can't stop the lust. They, They need help. They need hope. And the message we have for them is that God's grace has been revealed from heaven to redeem everyone, the possibility for the nations to come. God, I pray that we would understand this important message and that our church would be the, live and, 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 and actually be, have the impact that you've designed us to have. I thank you, God, for the privilege of studying this now. May our hearts be attuned to your word. In Christ's glorious name. Amen. Well, as we've been saying, as we've been going through Titus, uh, one of the things that I love about this book is that it teaches us how to live in a godless world. And we do live in a pretty godless world. We live in a world where all kinds of horrible things are happening. And, and it feels, from our perspective, as if this stuff's going on exponentially. And it's just going faster and faster. And, 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 and sometimes it, it changes happen so fast that we don't even know how to respond to the changes. And what is the role of the church? What is the role of Christians? And how are we supposed to engage our culture? Well, Titus is a a man who was given this pastoral role in Crete. Crete is an island, a Greek island. And uh, and Paul went there, actually, as he was making his way up to Rome. And uh, he stopped there. A church was started. He left Titus there. And he wrote Titus this letter. And he said, now I want you to establish this church here. 
I want you to establish it with godly leaders so that these leaders would, would, would stand for the truth because there's a lot of bad leaders out there. And I want the people to be established so that they could live in a way that makes a difference in their world. Now, the impact that they're to make in this world is at a pretty significant level. Because I believe God has designed the church to impact the culture. I believe he has. I believe that that we've been given everything we need right here in our church to actually have a deep and meaningful and profound impact on the culture around us. Now you say, how do you do that? It doesn't seem like we're doing really well. I mean, it seems like we're kind of blowing it. How are we supposed to have this impact in the culture? Well, I want to show you a picture that I brought up last week. So if you're here last week, you're used to this picture. But here it is. Now, do not worry about the words. If you weren't here last week, you can't read those words. I can't even read those words, and I'm close. But I didn't put it up there for the words. I put it up there for the picture. Okay, what this is, is what's called the cultural iceberg. You can read that part. And what it's talking about is the fact that when you look at culture, and I got my little pointer here, when you look at culture, there are things at the top of the surface. It's like an iceberg, right? If you've ever seen an iceberg, I've seen an iceberg up close. More ice is below the water than what's above the water. Okay, it's pretty amazing if you can take a boat up to an iceberg and see it. You actually shouldn't get real close because they can flip and you could die. So anyway, get as close as you can. And, um, and, uh, and of course, when you're younger, you get closer. But anyways, you get up there and, and you see it. And, and you do, you see the, the ice underneath the water. It's pretty amazing. And it's the same thing with culture. There are things that we can see, stuff that sticks out of the water. What is the stuff we can see? You know, we evaluate our culture. We can see the movies that come out. That's something you can observe in a culture. You see uh, the way the culture treats the elderly. You see the way they treat death. You see the way they treat life. You see the way they treat children. You see the way schools are run. You see the way what textbooks come out, right? Those are the observable parts of culture. And those are the parts of the culture we react to, right? We engage many ways at this level. And so suddenly, you know, if you have your kid in school and up comes this textbook and you look and you go, oh my, that's a horrible textbook. I don't want my kid learning this. Right? You're engaging at the top of the iceberg. Now, what tends to happen in culture is that we tend to live at the top of the iceberg. We tend to live there because that's the stuff that touches us. And though we engage at the top of this level, up here at this top part, change doesn't come if we change the top of the iceberg. If you really want to have a meaningful impact in the culture, you've got to change it at what's called that deep culture level. The stuff you can't see. What is the stuff that you can't see? What, what goes below the culture? Well, what goes below the culture are values. The values. What you believe about God. What you believe about humanity. What you believe about creation. What you believe is good. What you believe is bad. How do you define righteousness? How do you define unrighteousness? What, is, what would be considered a noble act and what would be considered an ignoble act? Like the, those kinds of things are at the deep culture level. Now, when people are impacted at the deep culture level, then it changes the top of the iceberg. If suddenly I say, I value life and I value marriage, then I'm not going to make a movie that condemns life and condemns marriage, right? If that's my value then I'm not going to make a movie, right? So, so if we're actually talking about impacting the culture, we have to impact it at the deep culture level. 
The great thing about the book of Titus is that's what this is about. He says God's grace has come. God's grace has come to actually redeem us from that lawlessness. God's grace has come to actually transform us from valuing things that are unrighteous to valuing things that are righteous. God's grace actually transforms our heart. Now, there is a challenge with this. There's a challenge with this, and here's the challenge. The challenge is is that if I stay up at the top of the iceberg, and I'm only dealing with the surface culture, that's easier for me, because that doesn't require me to change. Right? It doesn't require any change. All it requires is for me to be annoyed with something and to try to get rid of it. Right? I mean, only one value, like annoyance, maybe two, and perseverance. I'm going to fight this textbook so it finally gets rid of it. And, and I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing if there's a bad textbook. But, but I'm not changing the culture if I get rid of a textbook. Now, the reality is, though, if I'm going to deal on the deep culture level, then that means that now suddenly my character comes into play. Because if I'm talking about that I value life, I value truth, I value respect, I value nobility, then people are going to say, hey, how come you're not that way? So now the challenge comes on. Now here's what God says, book of Titus. He says, listen, God's grace has come to do that work at the deep culture level in you. He's done this. This is what his grace is about. Helping you to become this. And then, as we get into chapter 3, as we'll see today, now, go live that in the world. Go live it that way. Go live it in such a way that the world actually sees this. They should be engaging the deep culture change. And when they engage at the deep culture change, then the message of grace can be proclaimed. The word of God can be upheld and God's grace can just be disseminated and the culture actually can be changed. So what's amazing is that what God's done is he's given the church his grace, he's given the church his word, he's given the church his teachers so that we can be understanding this, learning it, growing it, being shepherded in it so that we can then just go out and live it. And, and whether you think that seems lame or not, that is where change occurs. That is where change ultimately occurs. Because the reality is, and, and you know, philosophers and sociologists, they always define culture this way. Here's a common definition of culture. The accumulation of the values of a people. It's when enough people believe something when a big enough group of people believe something, that is what makes the culture. So if a big enough group of us believe in Christ and believe in His grace and believe in these truths that are here, that makes a culture. And that culture can begin to impact in a greater way because it's life. This is what we have. But it's a challenge for us, and we're going to be pushed into this challenge today. But here's what I want to show you. We get into chapter 3 of Titus. Paul telling Titus, hey, I want you to, to remind the church to live what I want to just simply call a high-impact life. And a high-impact life is marked by three things. It's marked by submission, service, and sound speech. Submission, service, and sound speech. And by the way, I got all those S's out of the text. I didn't force that, that at all. It was just right there. So it's exciting when the Bible alliterates itself. So we're going to see this. We're going to see this, this high-impact life and how it's marked by submission 
service, and sound speech. And I want you to understand this because what we're supposed to see here, by the way, is the basic operating system of our life. That's what this is. Three, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, is supposed to be the normal way we live our life. This is just supposed to be how we live. Now, I need to say one little word, one little caveat here before we begin. When we read a passage like this, the human reaction is to do something. Okay? And, I, and, and here's what the human reaction is, because it's in me. Right? The human reaction is, when I read something along the lines of, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey. Like, when I read that, the first place my, my brain wants to go to are all the exceptions. Right? What are all the exceptions, right? So, so somebody reads that, and, and your first thought is, well, wait a minute, you're not suggesting that we're supposed to, you're not saying we're not, right? Isn't that where it goes? As soon as you hear that, when you're going to hear you are to be, you know, show respect to every human being, oh, yeah? Well, what if they're coming into their house and they're wanting to cut your kids up with a knife? Are you supposed to be courteous to them, right? That's what happens. That's where your mind goes. And, and we live in the world of exceptions, don't we? Right? I mean, it's just like ingrained. It's like, I don't know, I think it's like your first skill, you know, as a, as a young person, is the exception to the rule. I want you to be home by 6. Well, what happens if there's an earthquake? Just be home at 6. Yeah, but if there's an earthquake and I can't get home, what happens? I mean, I remember asking my parents questions like that. You're like, somebody did that. I can't be the only one in the room who's ever done that. I used to say that all the time. I need you to be home by 5 o'clock. That's when we're having dinner. What if there's an earthquake and there's this giant cavern and I can't get across the cavern? Be like, just be home by five, okay? <laughs> Quit with the exceptions. That's where we go. So here's what I want to tell you. I'm going to address a couple of exceptions along the way. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you some there. But on balance, here's the agreement we need to have when we study this. Let's not worry about the exceptions. Let's not worry about it. Let's not worry about the moment if the, you know, the military comes in and forces you to beat your own child, then should we be, you know, let's not worry about that. Why don't we just say, this is our basic operating system. Let's start there. If this becomes our basic operating system, we'll have wisdom on the exceptions. We'll have the wisdom when the exceptions show up. Now, I'll toss a couple of exceptions out just to to help us navigate. But fundamentally, what we have to do is not study this passage through the lens of the exceptions, but study it through the lens as an operating system because this is the operating system that God wants the church to have because that's how we have deep culture impact. Okay, so let's look at the first one here. The high impact living is marked by submission. Let's look at verse 1. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Okay, so you notice he says to remind them, which probably means that that, that Paul had said this when he was there. Okay? To remind them. But notice what he's saying. I want you to I remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, comma, to be obedient. It's kind of all one thought there. And this particular thought is probably one of the most unique aspects of Christian teaching, of God himself. We believe that God made the world. We believe that he's placed his son as ruler over all creation. We believe that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we believe that all of our allegiance is to him. Now, when you hear statements like that, if somebody were just to walk in and hear me make a statement like that, 
and, and especially if they were a politician or some, something along that line, they might think, wow, this guy's elevating himself above all the human authorities because he's saying Jesus is king and you know, it's God's world and all my allegiance is to him. And so at face value, it appears as if Christians would be the most rebellious to human authority because we have only one king and that's Jesus. We have only one way and that's God's way. But yet, we're not that way. The reality is is that we recognize that God did make the world. And when God made the world, you know how he made the world? He made the world with systems and structures in it. And he made the world with, with positions and authorities. And he made the world set up in such a way so that it would function in harmony. So that parents would be the ones governing their home and not the children. So that there would be civil authorities. And because of sin, he introduces this notion, even of a more dramatic way, that there would be civil authorities so that peace would be kept in the world. And so that things would work. So that even up to our day, living in the type of technological age we live in, I can drive up and if there's a red light, I'll stop. Because I know they got a green light and they're going. And we have this great society and I have been in places in the world where those lights mean nothing. And you are taking your life in your own hands when you're driving through those areas. I've been in those places where you're like, just hold down. Like, God, get me through this. <laughs> Let this fly over this mess. Right? And, and yet we live in a world where he put order and function. And God, who established his son Jesus to rule over all of creation has told us, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Honor them. When he talks about rulers and authorities, he's talking about the entire system of structure. So that would be from the military, to the police, to the mayors, to the king, to your boss, to anybody who has a position over you. In that position, he says, listen, I want you, and we'll talk about the specifics of what the submission is and obedience mean. But he says, I want you to do this. Now, I want you to, for a moment to think about how hard this would have been for the people in Crete. Just think about this. This would be very difficult for the Cretans. And here's the reason why. Two reasons why. Number one, we learned in chapter one, Crete was a really pagan place. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, liars. In fact, there's actually a word, if you look at the word uh, for liar in the Greek, it is actually the word Cretans, because it comes from Cretes. That is what the word is. They were so bad, they were so wicked, they, they so devalued the truth that they got a word named after them. Liar. Right? If you're a liar, man, you were a Cretan. And the worst insult you could give to somebody was to call them a Cretan. You're just a Cretan. Some of the old literature, it actually comes out. Somebody's calling someone a Cretan. It's an insult. So I want you to stop and think about this. Now, you li- let's just say you lived in Crete, and your neighbor, who's this wretched person, suddenly becomes your tax collector. And he's a liar. And he's going to just steal from you. And he's going to come over, and he's going to say, you owe me 70% of your income. And you're going to say, 70%? What are you talking about? The Roman government's only requiring 15. You owe me 70. Fork it over, you're going to debtor's prison. And so you for 70%, and then you're watching this guy just get drunk and stoned and live this immoral life on your money. That's the real world they lived in. 
And Paul says, hey, Titus, remind them to be subservient to these people. Now, they had another, would be another struggle for them too. Crete is part of Greece. What was the empire before the Roman Empire? The big massive ruler. Hopefully you can figure this out. What was the big massive empire before the Romans? Greece, right? Good. Hopefully you figured that out. If you were lost on that one, wake up. Okay, it's right there. Okay, Greece was. The Greeks just resented Roman domination. Historically, they say that Crete was the most rebellious of all of the, 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 uh, the Greek states against the Roman rule. They just resented it. They resented being under their rule. They resented all that was evolved. They resented, they thought that their Greek culture was being basically, um, you know, just destroyed actually by the Romans. Even though the Romans were pushing the Greek culture, they felt that they were, it was an impure use and it was just, they were just offended by this. So I want you just to stop and think about something. Paul writes to Titus. He says, now, remind these believers to be submissive to their rules, rulers and authority, to be obedient, and there's no exceptions given. Knowing how pagan this place is and knowing how much they resent the Roman government. Why would he say this without exceptions? Because this is the general operating system of the believer. Why? Because we believe that God established authority. We believe that he did. And we believe that he established that authority and as such, we honor it. We honor it. We honor that. Because it's from God. Now you might say, okay, are there exceptions? <laughs> right? Because it wouldn't be hard if I were to say, let's just do a little dialogue. What are all the exceptions? And boop, 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 we would... We would, we would have them, right? But let me just give you some biblical exceptions, right? Are there, does the Bible say you just do it no matter what they say? What are the exceptions? Let me just give you a couple of them. Of course, we see in, in the Scriptures there were exceptions given. In Exodus chapter 1, we know that the Egyptians were being threatened by the population growth of the Hebrews. And so they asked all the midwives to kill the Hebrew baby boys. And it says that in Exodus they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They weren't going to murder a boy, right? We see that there. Of course, Daniel's the other great... We see two examples in Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are an example, right? They, they refused to uh, worship the golden image. Daniel refused to pray and was tossed into a lion's den for it. Right? These, these people paid dearly for this. So, so we can see this. We can see that when the apostles were under pressure in the book of Acts... To not preach, they said, we're going to preach. So you can see the exception. There are exceptions in there. If they're asking you to actually do something murderous or if they're asking you to worship something else, obviously we see in there, we're going to give our allegiance to God. But at the same token, what I don't want to do is I don't want to live my entire life as if I'm existing and dwelling within the exception. That the exception is the bubble around me and that this is great, I live in the exception. So I don't have to do it. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor who told me the story one time of this guy in his church who was, never did this. Like, this guy was just rebellious against every authority in his life. And they would try to help him, but this guy was so rebellious, man, he just, like, you know, couldn't even listen to the church. And he was rebellious against the police. He was just always complaining about the police. 
Always complaining about his boss. Always complaining about the government. Always complaining about the president. Always complaining about the elders of the church. Always complaining about the pastors. Always complaining about the music guy. Like, just, just constant complaint. And everywhere he went, just these complaints kept coming and coming and coming. And every day, he would, everywhere he went, he'd have his kids in the car, and he would just be complaining. Oh, I can't believe what the government's doing. Oh, I can't believe what happened in church today. Oh, I can't believe this. Can't believe that. On and on it went. And, and they would try to help him in the church. And he'd, oh, why would I do that? You guys are a bunch of losers. You don't know what life is. And he'd complain. Well, his kids start coming of age. And suddenly his daughter is not listening to the mom at home. The mom's saying, I need you to do this. No, no. And she's throwing these temper tantrums, like 14 years old, throwing these huge temper tantrums. So finally, this guy brings his daughter to the pastor and says, you got to fix her. Right? And my friend said, hey, I've been waiting for this conversation. <laughs> I knew this day was coming, and I've been waiting for it. You've discipled your daughter well. She's doing exactly what you taught her. Don't be submissive to your rulers and authorities. Don't be submissive. Fight them. Resist them. God has placed over you a president, a legal system, policemen, a boss, and you just shake your fist every moment in front of your daughter. Just da-da-da. Do you think she's going to be raised to honor your wife? Do you think that she's going to go wake, wake up one morning at 14 and say, oh, I'm going to do what mom says? She's been taught that authority doesn't matter. Oh, the pastor was in a, in a zone at that moment, man. He's like, I just felt so good. You know? Finally, he got the point because it came home. You see, we're believers. We honor authority, and we honor it in front of our children so our children would honor authority. And suddenly... People are at peace when they live this way. Homes are at peace. Society is at peace. God made it to function so that there would be peace. Okay. So what does he say here? He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to obey. Submissive means to put yourself in the right place. That's what all it means. The word submission means you acknowledge the place you're in. You acknowledge the place you're in. What role do I have? If I'm driving down the road and a police officer pulls me over, oh, 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 I can't believe that cop's doing this. I'm going to give him an earful when he gets up to the window. Rawr, rawr, rawr. No, put yourself in the right place. Yes, sir. What did I do wrong, sir? Right? I'm going to put myself, right now, this is your job, is to pull me over. My job is to listen to what you have to say. Be submissive. Okay? And then to obey means to do what you're told. It's pretty simple. But what about, well, we're not going to live in the exceptions. I think if this becomes the worldview, the exceptions will be clear. If the cop walks up to your window and says, I've pulled you over because I want you to beat your wife. No, I'm not going to do that. You know? Okay, but he won't. He's generally going to say, are you aware how fast you were going? You know? You're going to say, well, everyone else was going. No, it doesn't matter. Okay, it's not a speed suggestion. It's a speed limit. Okay. So it's that kind of a thing, okay? So you put yourself in the right place. This is what he's saying. Remind them to do this. Now, they had it in a much tougher culture than we have it in, okay? But if you think about it, man, this is, think about, this is the way that we make a huge impact in the world because our culture, because we believe we have a voice and a vote in everything, <clears throat> right? 
uh, the operating system of, of, of the United States is. I got a voice and I got a vote and I got to be heard. I don't need to listen to you. You need to listen to me is, is the operating system of our culture. Think about the impact we could make at the deep culture level. If our operating system is this at work, just pick work. That's your operating system at work, man. You will stand out <laughs> as everybody's standing around yapping about the boss. You'll stand out. Okay? High impact living marked by submission. Let's look at the next thing. High impact living is also marked by service. Notice what he says. Be ready to be ready for every good work. Very interesting statement. To be ready, it means you're poised. You're poised and you're ready to do what's best. To do what's best. This could mean anything. This could be, you know, the nat- you know some big disaster hits. We'll, we're going to be the first ones there. But actually, I think it's more of, a, of an operating system or a worldview. Just give you an example of it in the negative. For me, how I didn't do this. When I was a kid, my... Uh, Bedroom was in the basement of our house, <clears throat> and uh, we also in our basement had the freezer, and like the food pantry was down there. And so when my mom would go shopping, she would place food and things that need to go downstairs. I would come home from school, I'd bring my stuff down to my room. As I'm walking downstairs, what do I pass? Everything that needs to go downstairs. Do I bring it down? Vote. Yes or no? <laughs> no, you don't bring it down, right? I don't bring it down. Then, of course, I'm down in the basement, and my mom yells, Stephen, why didn't you bring that down? And I say, because you didn't ask. <laughs> Kids should not be taking notes right here, okay? What is that? And you know what? That's like was the struggle. Why? You know, if Paul were alive, the Apostle Paul, and he walked into my home, he would have grabbed me and said, be ready, man, be poised. Walk in the house and say, how can I lighten mom's load now? How can I do that, right? That's what Paul would be saying. Wake up, boy, come on. Don't be so self-absorbed. You see, when you don't live that way, you're just self-absorbed. He's saying, be ready. You walk into a situation and say, how do I make this situation better? How do I lighten the load? He's like, this is the cultural change. It's amazing. Could you imagine? I, I, I would love this. You know, if this could really happen this week, I'd love to have a testimony, have a kid come up here and give a testimony next week on this. You go over to a friend's house, especially let's say their parents aren't believers or struggling, and you go over there, don't tell your friend this, and you're just going to go over there to serve his or her parents. See what kind of difference that would make. You know, I'm going to go over to my friend's house, and I'm just going to go up to the parents and say, is there anything I can do to make your life easier today? Okay, after you've done CPR, and they've come out of the coma, you're like, seriously, I'd like to help you, you know? That is culture. You see, this is what he wants. This is really impacting the culture at the value level, the deep culture level. Be ready means that you are poised to do whatever it takes. Now, I want to give you a definition of a word here. He says, for every good work. Now, I'm going to give you a definition of good here, and I hope I don't lose you here. The word good literally means lacking in nothing. 
That's actually what good means. So when God saw the earth and he said it was good, it meant that he saw it and he said it's, it's not lacking anything. Right? So when he made the animals, he said, wow, that's good. Not lacking anything. Made creation, it's good. Not lacking anything. Makes man, the male side of man, and he said, hey, this isn't good. It's lacking something. What's it missing? Woman. That's why he said it's not good. It's lacking. Good always deals with lacking. So when you're poised to do every good work, what it means is that you are ready to take away all the needs that are present at that moment. Take away everything that's lacking. That's what it means to be ready. Take away everything that's lacking. There's the heartbeat of it. That is high-impact living, man, if you're marked by that kind of service. Okay. This is a huge thing because we live in a fairly narcissistic culture that just thinks of themselves and they walk in what they want, what they need. This is what I need in this situation. This is what's best for me. And, and, and so talk about changing the value and impacting at a cultural level, at that level. Okay, let's look at the third thing he says, though. Okay, so we know it's submission. We know it's service. And then he says high-impact living is marked by sound speech. Notice verse 2. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's all. <laughs> that's, that's pretty big. I'm glad it's God's grace that teaches us this and not his law. I am so glad that, it's a God, that the text does not say God's law has revealed this to you because then I would be condemned. I can't keep this. I need help. And grace says I'm there to help you. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, now... If you're going to make a difference, notice this little list of things here. He says, to speak evil of no one. That's pretty clear what that means. That means that sitting around and listing off all of the negative traits of somebody, all of the ways that they've let you down, all of the ways they've hurt you, all the ways that, you know, where if the entire list is everything, how horrible this person is. Stop it. That's what he says. We don't speak evil of people. We don't. Why don't we? We'll see next week why we don't. Because apart from God's grace, we would be worse than the person we're gossiping about. We would be worse than them. So that little list, that little conversation that can occur as we're outlining it all, he says, don't do it. We don't speak evil. We don't, we don't rip people. We don't slander them. We don't hurt them. We don't speak derogatory. Our tongue is not used to exalt ourselves over someone else and be their judge. We speak evil of no one. That's, and, and what's interesting about that little phrase, no one, means that there is no exception clause. There's no exception clause. He doesn't say to speak evil of the body of Christ. But you can rip the politicians. Uh, to speak evil of, right? He doesn't do that. Or, or you know... Don't rip the... No one. And trust me, they lived in Crete, man. Like, you should be... Like, everyone around you was bad. They couldn't define... They couldn't find a good person there. It would be easy to do this. And it's easy for us because our mind loves to fill the gaps with negatives, don't we? Don't we? Right? Maybe you're going to talk to somebody and they're walking past you 
And you think, oh, man, they are just so rude. I was going over to talk to them. They just walked past me. And you have no idea they got the stomach flu, and they're trying to make their way to the bathroom to throw up. Right? You have no idea. But right away, what do you do? You fill the gap with the worst thing, and you go home. Man, I was trying to talk to that person. They just walked right past me. They are so rude. You know, that's it. I'm done with those. We're never inviting them over, right? There it goes. You're down, the, down that road quickly. And he says, don't do that. Speak evil of no one. It's very clear. Now, the next one, notice. He says, to avoid quarreling. What does that mean? Well, a quarrelsome person is the fact that people will take situations and avoid every, or, or elevate everything into a conflict. That's what quarrelsome means. It means to take a situation and elevate it into a conflict. So now you're, you're, you, you know, you're fighting about it. Or that there's a problem here. Okay? And he says, you want to avoid that. We're not quarrelsome people. Quarrel, the idea of quarrelsome, by the way, has kind of three elements kind of embedded within it. I'll give you the three elements that are embedded within it. The first element is a quarrelsome person is what you might call an over-confronter. Everything, right, they got one tool in their toolbox, and it's confrontation. Right? So you invite them over to your house for a... Or, you know, they invite you over to their house for a party, and they say, hey, we need everybody to bring a dessert, and you're coming along, and you forgot the dessert. Right? The quarrelsome person is going to see that you didn't bring a dessert, and they're not going to say, hey, no problem, we got enough. You're good. They're going to take you aside and say, hey, you know, this was a party, and in the party, both in the invitation, the email, and the verbal thing, I told you to bring a dessert, and you didn't do it. Why? I forgot. Yeah, but do you know what that says about you? It says you don't care. Did you know that? It says you don't care. Yeah, I, I just forgot. Yeah, but do you know what? That says a lot about you. And it also says how you feel about me. Right now you're at the party and they're like, boom, they're on you. Right? He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Second thing embedded in quarrelsome is debating. It's the idea of the debater. Right? And so, so, so all of a sudden... We're not just dealing with an issue on the table. It's a debate. It's, a, it's now we're fighting over it. They, they elevate it right away. They take a side. And, we're, and, and, and you're either with them or against them. It's the idea of that. You're either 100% with me or 100% against me, but there's no area where you just say, hey, we're, we differ, and it's okay to differ. God is so glorious and so immense. He didn't make us monolithic. He made us to reflect the brilliance of his glory, and we're just different. No, with me or against me. Don't be quarrelsome. Third element, similar to debating, but it's slightly different. Um, uh, Embedded in the word quarrelsome is taking the opposite side. A quarrelsome person sometimes just argues for the sake of arguing. I have met people who just, they just love to argue. And just right off the bat, they just toss the opposite side out. You say, do you believe that? No, I just thought it'd be fun to argue. (laughs) You know? I get kind of excited when I do that. And Paul would say, stop it. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's wrong. It's just be quarrelsome. Don't be quarrelsome. Avoid it. Run away from it is what he's saying, actually. Do not go there. Avoid it. Avoid means you, you, you dodge it. Don't go there personally and don't hang out when people are doing it. Okay? Next one, to be gentle. Gentle, actually, that is literally meek. It means coming in always in an understated position in relationships. That's the whole picture there. Right? An understated way. Showing humility towards people. Um, 
It, it, that's really what it is. It's, it's, a, it's such a level of kindness that Jesus is being reviled and slapped, and he doesn't scream and yell and swear back and, and slap back. Right? So that's the image. For second, or First Peter chapter 2 says that Jesus was being punched, and they were swearing at him. And he didn't hit him back or swear back. Right? They punched and slapped him. He'd go, oh, yeah? Well, I'm God. Watch this. Wham! Right? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He didn't act that way. He took it. And then he said, God, you're the judge. I'll trust, Father, that you will take care of this in your time. Because he was gentle. That's gospel living. That's grace. It's dispensing grace upon somebody who's coming after you, and I'm going to respond with grace back. Okay? And then finally to kind of sum it up, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Perfect means absolutely, exactly right courtesy. What does that mean? That means this. I think the image here is this. God makes man, and everybody's in the image of God. They belong to him. They're his, he made the world. And when I look at a person, I have to see that they've been made by God, which means they deserve respect. They deserve to be treated with dignity no matter what. And there's no variance with that, is what he's saying. Perfect means you've got no variance. Perfect courtesy. Interesting. I remember I had one of these flying experiences. If you, if you fly a lot or fly a fair amount, you've had one of these experiences where you get on the plane. It was a hot summer day. I got on the plane. They backed us out onto the tarmac, and then they said, oh, sorry, the plane can't take off. We've got a problem with it, a mechanical. So now you're sitting, and they get the engines off. It's like 105 degrees out in Chicago, and you're sweating, and like an hour we're sitting on the plane. They ran out of water, and, uh, and I'm starting to get claustrophobic. Like It's really starting to mess with my head. So I'm like, oh my, I'm stuck in this cylinder and we're going to burn to death, right? And so like, I'm just, it was frustrating. Everybody's angry. They bring the plane back in. They get us out. They make us wait in this area for another hour and a half. And then they finally say, I'm sorry, your flight is canceled. So now, picture the mood. The poor gate agent. Oh, you don't want that job at that moment who has to stand behind the counter and rebook 170 people who are really happy, right? <laughs> There's two of them up there, man, and they are just getting shot by everybody. Blah, blah, blah. How dare you do this? How dare you do this, right? And I mean, and as you, and of course, you're waiting in a line, and if you're like number 160 in line, you just got a lot more energy going, right? I mean, you're fired up and ready to roll. And, uh, and what Paul would say is, don't, don't unload. Don't unload. She's been created in the image of God. And she deserves courtesy. The airline deserves courtesy. The cable company deserves courtesy. The people who messed up your bill deserves courtesy. The person who didn't deliver your thing on time deserves courtesy. Why? They were made in the image of God. And so notice... There's no wiggle room on this one. He says, to everyone. Everyone. Now, let's wrap it up. What do we do here? God has left us here to make a difference. And he's left us to make a difference at the culture level, the deep culture level. 
And the deep culture level deals with values, they deal with ethics, it deals with the things you believe are true, and it deals with how you're going to treat people. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, church, the call is first and foremost submission. We acknowledge God, and because we acknowledge God, we acknowledge he set a system up. And we acknowledge he's over that system, which means we don't have to worry. If your candidate doesn't make it in the 2016 elections, it's fine, because God's still in control and Jesus is still king. It's okay. So you can honor it even if your person doesn't get in. We can do it because Jesus is our king. And we can submit. And we can teach our children to submit. And so when they're at home, they don't need to hear us jawing about this or jawing about that or getting on this and getting on that because, trust me, they'll follow that. They'll follow that if they're younger. And you'll see it in the way they treat you and your spouse. He's left us here. He's left us here to make sure that we are ready and poised to make up what's lacking in any situation. And then suddenly we wouldn't use our tongue to hurt, condemn, slander, tear people down, get an attitude, quarrel, fight, argue. But we'd use our tongue to build people up, to be courteous, to be gentle. That is deep culture impact. So, Good news out of all this is that you read this and you do not go amen. You go, ouch, painful, I can't do it. I, I blew it on the way over here. <laughs> Dude, were you listening to our card ride over as I was talking about something that happened in the debate this week and blah, blah, blah? Yeah. And so you know what we get? The good news is we get to be driven to the reality of chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. And you know what it's doing? It's training us to renounce this. It's teaching us. It's reminding us in moments like this when we're in the Word to say, yeah, I don't want to be that way. God changed me. His Spirit is bringing situations to your mind so that you would repent and say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. Help me not be that way. He's training you so that eventually you'll say, I don't want to do that, God. I want to do this. And over time, you'll change. And as we change and as we as a group collectively live this way, because a a culture is when enough people have a shared value that it actually starts impacting the way somebody lives, there's enough people in this room to change our county if we say we're committed to this as our operating system. So why don't we pray? Let's do it now. Let's go before God and let's pray for this kind of cultural impact in our life. Let's go in repentance and, uh, and dependence now that God would turn us this way. So let's pray together. God, I am so grateful that we read this passage through the lens of grace. But Lord, I don't want to use your grace as a way of uh, walking away or ignoring this, but that your grace would train us today. Lord, all of us This whole week I kept thinking of situations in my own life where I have failed in these areas. And God, thank you for bringing those to attention. Thank you for showing us, showing me areas that I've got to change, God. And and so now, Lord, I bring those to you. And and all of us are having the shared experience and hearing ways that we're quarrelsome or where we don't build people up or where we're working counter-purposes to your grace. 
But God, I'm grateful that you bring this up not to condemn us. You bring it up, cleanse us. So that we would be changed and that together as your church, we would be a collective group of people that are addressing our culture at a deep culture level. And that we could have the impact you've designed our church to have. Thank you, God, for your grace. May we not treat it lightly today. In Christ's name, amen.